Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Kimberly Garza, author of the debut novel, The Last Karen Kawas. Booklist wrote about the novel, written in lyrical, nearly hypnotic prose that makes the reader feel the Texan humidity. This is a brilliantly plotted, startling, and richly rewarding exploration of the myths that bind people together, generational traumas, and the remarkable adaptability of humans. Kimberly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your debut novel, The Last Karen Kawas, how would you describe the novel? Sure. It's a uh, it's a novel. It told it in stories is how I like to think of it. Um, and it is um, about and kind of centers on this small neighborhood in Galveston Island, Texas, that is called Fish Village. Uh, and really at the heart of it are a number of characters, but at their center is uh, a young woman named Carly Castillo, who has uh, lived her whole life on the island, been raised uh, by her grandmother, who is also a native Galvestonian, and and has raised Carly to believe that they're descendants of the Kanankawa people, who are uh, an indigenous tribe that that um, settled the Texas coast. And uh, were believed, popularly taught this way um, to to Carly as well, that to have gone extinct. Um, and so Magdalena, her grandmother, has has taught her to believe that they're the last descendants, or they're among the last descendants of the Karankawa people. And um, and for that reason, they're tied to the island. And Carly's kind of grappling with her desire to leave, uh, as as a lot of young people want to. <laughs> um, to leave the island, to leave everything behind. And at the same time that she's sort of reckoning with her choices, uh, Hurricane Ike is drawing closer to Galveston. And I'm curious, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write the novel? I do. I So I, as I said, it's a novel told in, in multiple stories and, and multiple voices, but I wrote what ended up being the title story of the novel, The Last Caronquist. I wrote it not long after Hurricane Ike hit, so probably 2009. Um, and I was born in Galveston. I have, I at the time, I still had family there who uh, had evacuated during the hurricane, and and I had gone back to visit them after they'd returned, and they were in the process of getting homes fixed and you know property repaired, and um, so just the sight of Galveston post hurricane really stuck with me. Um, you know, garbage on the streets and uh dead trees you know like a lot of a lot of damage um that they were recovering from and it just sort of stayed with me so when i in 2009 when i was in a, a creative writing workshop for my master's degree i i almost always as a writer start with place a, a place that really resonates with me or, or is sitting in my mind um that i can begin a story from and i i had galveston on the brain so i wrote what would end up being the the introduction to carly and her family and her situation um, as they were considering whether or not to evacuate uh, in advance of the hurricane. And and then when I sat down to write what I thought would be a collection of stories and ended up shifting more into something more like a novel, um, they were all in the universe and, of Carly and, and Fish Village and Galveston. So, um, yeah, it, it was always the the impetus of uh, what would be a larger story told in many stories if that makes sense um and that was always that was the first and so what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing your first stories and what was your path to publication 
uh, to getting this debut novel published? The uh, I guess in terms of just my my path towards writing, I I mean this is not unoriginal. I like not an original story, but I, I always wanted to be a writer. I I didn't know any writers growing up. I didn't know how to even begin to do that. So um, as a college student, and then later when I went back to graduate school, I, I uh, worked in journalism for a while, and uh, you know somewhere along the way learned that there were there were classes and degrees and majors that could be focused on creative writing. And at the time I was like, what? You can do that? Um, <laughs> and so I I kind of leaned in that way. It's not, certainly not the path for everyone, nor should it be you know, necessary, but uh, that was the one that worked for me is just, I needed so much education on how to how, how to find my own voice and writing. And, and I was fortunate to have teachers and professors who helped me with that. And um, the more I went back to to get more degrees, the more workshops I sat in and and deadlines that I had, which were always necessary for me as a writer. You know, um, I need the deadline. Um, and uh, and and the way I found my my voice in writing, certainly, but also, you know, my my passion for teaching. You know, I became a um, I'm a professor now, and and I teach creative writing and literature. That's that's been such a joy to have alongside. Um, you know, my original love, which was, which was writing. Um, as far as the path to publication, this, this book, the first draft of it, the first draft of what would be the last Garanko was, was, uh, served as my dissertation for, um, for my doctoral program in, in North Texas. And, uh, so I was really fortunate in that way to have a good sense of, uh, uh, of the book before I started submitting it, you know, to, to literary agents, which was my first step and then uh, ultimately to to editors and to publishing houses. Um, so I had a good foundation for what the book, and it did change <laughs> quite a bit. And there were new stories added and some, you know, that I you had to cut and, and reshift and change quite a bit. But it, you know, it had the bones there. It had it had um, it had the shape of it and the, the themes and the people. So um, I worked on it for a couple of years as part of my my you know, school and my program. Uh, and then when I finished, um, let's see, this would have been in uh, 2019, uh, late 2019, I was working on it a little bit more. And then I sent it out to literary agents um, and was fortunate to land with mine. And he and I worked on it over what would end up being, um, you know, working from home year, 2020. Sure. Uh, and and um, we were delayed as far as our, our vision for when we would try to send it to publishers because of obvious reasons, nobody was reading, everybody was struggling with with what to do with this world um, and COVID. And so I think by the time we were ready to send and people were hopefully ready to receive it, it was fall of 2020. And I was um, so fortunate and grateful to, to land with Henry Holt, who'd been nothing but fantastic for this book. That's great. Well, in, in this novel, you're you're writing about a community and characters that aren't usually featured in novels or media about mm. Texas. I'm I'm curious, mm. was it was it a challenge for you to kind of find your voice and to write um about this community and these characters? It was a challenge. I I think you know, it's it's twofold. It's partly internal. I think a lot of writers, me especially, were it took a long time for me to find what my what my voice was, what my writing style tends to, what my what my habits and my comfort zones uh, are for me as a writer and in my prose. But I think it was also compounded by the fact that I didn't see writers like me. I didn't see stories like me growing mm -hmm. up. 
Um, and I love to read. I was ravenous, you know, with reading. And but but I, the people I read were, uh, you know, like fantasy authors writing invented <laughs> worlds and characters. Or I was reading, you know, Hemingway. Or I was reading Faulkner. And I I wasn't reading people or seeing myself or people who look like me in in literature. So I think at the time, I I mean, I, I'm sure I wrote a lot of stories where people were blonde and blue eyed and they lived mm-hmm. in New York or whatever. You know, I just didn't I didn't think that. Um, my experiences could translate to the page and, and that I could write them. Uh, and um, somewhere around age 14, 15, uh, a high school teacher in English assigned, assigned us Sandra Cisneros. And that was the first introduction to like, people can, people can write us, you know, we can be in, we can be in books, we can be in literature. Um, and it was kind of no turning back at that point. I, I was finding the ways in which I was going to tell these in certain ways and certain styles, but um, I was also finding out, you know, how I how I wanted to write, who I wanted to write, and and so often it, it leaned back to um, the kinds of people that I know very well, the the you know the, the immigrants and the um, the native Texans and the the transplants and the migrants and the you know mixed race people who who surround me and are are very much part of my experience as well. Sure. And, and I'm curious about your writing process when you're working on a story. Do you usually, when you sit down to write a story, do you have um, an idea in mind or a plot? Or do you mm-hmm. literally sit down with an image or uh, just one line? How does that creative process work for you? Or does it vary from story to story? Yeah, it kind of, you know, it usually stays to a pattern. And then I rarely vary unless I'm really motivated to do so. Um, I tend to uh, put off the writing until the very <laughs> last possible moment. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm just like a, a confessed, admitted procrastinator. But I, I just think through a story for a very, very long time um, as I'm putting off the writing. You know, I'm I'm thinking through constantly the the idea of a plot and plot is not my strong point. I think I, I, or at least it comes, it comes secondary to um, the other elements for me, character setting um, situation. And I tend to think through those quite a bit. And I'll, before I start writing, I try to give myself the, uh, let's see, like the, the basic structure of a potential plot outline, if that makes sense. I don't even write Mm -hmm. it down. I just sort of have an idea in mind and um and the basic reason that it's there is because I as a writer tend to um tend to need some sort of motivation to keep going with plot if that makes sense I need to know where what I'm going to write next or else I'll just stall out and you know put put the computer away and watch Netflix um and <laughs> so I um so I give myself kind of a plot outline and you know when I'm stuck I can look at it and or think about it and and say like okay well the next plot point you know she can go uh, you know visit her father and they're going to have that conversation and so I'll, I'll I'll know where to go um but very rarely does a story end up uh, ascribing to that plot the plot outline it it takes turns as I'm writing it you know I I learn the characters a bit more when they're on the page and you know, they make different decisions or, uh, you know, a, a certain circumstance will come up that I hadn't anticipated, uh, that I discover along the way. And, um, so that, that tends to be how stories go for me. And, you know, as I said, I, I'll, I'll refer back to the original plan if and when I feel like I just need some push to, to keep going. Um, but almost never do I go back 
And I realized that it was perfect the whole time. You know, I'll go back and right. realize, no, that was a terrible point. I'm going to revise it. <laughs> or, um, or they, you know, they take shape somewhere else. They become their own people and, and do things I didn't expect. So I'm curious, are you working on more stories now? I'm working on a novel, uh, a second novel that is at least right now is, is much more in the traditional sense of a novel, like this mm -hmm. one kind of linear narrative. Um, me being me, there's there's a number of characters in it and that I'm really interested in. And so I don't I, I, I can't rule out the idea that I might shift over to them at some point and, and show their stories, too. But um, but, yeah, I'm working on one novel idea right now, which, uh, you know, as of now, it's about a, a family originally from the Philippines who've kind of scattered uh, across the world. And, and it's really focusing on these two um, daughters who are part of that family who lost their mother, uh, uh, you know, a couple of years prior to the the beginning of the novel. And they've lost touch with the family, their family in the Philippines because of, you know, the link that bound them. Their mother is, is gone. Um, and the sisters kind of have to reconnect with everyone in the Philippines when they discover that they've inherited uh, this patch of ancestral land and they all have to gather and decide what to do with it. Um, so, so they head back and, and to the, their mother's homeland and reconnect with her family and, um, and all kinds of relationships and hijinks ensue. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been, um, it's been fun to kind of play around with it, but as I said, I, I think through it quite a bit. So even when I sit and write and I'm drafting it now, um, you know, I I'll step away and just kind of sit and stare or go for a walk. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of playing with them in my mind. Like, would they do that? What would be the next step? Um, and, and seeing where they lead me is, is, has been pretty cool. That's fun. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Hamburglar, the time is yours. Bravo, bravo. He said, these are McDonald's best burgers ever. And then, can I keep them? And then he just grabbed them and ran away. Brubble. Now get a Big Mac or double cheeseburger for two bucks in the app. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. Must opt into rewards. Visit McD app for details. Available at most restaurants in this area. Comparison of McDonald's classic burgers to prior burgers. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Mm -hmm. Oh, man. Um, so much. So much good advice. I, I think, let's see. What I offer, there's a lot of things I could say, because I've heard a lot of things, which have always been so helpful to me to hear from other writers. Um, I think I would, I would try to stress that there's no one correct way to write. Uh, you know, I think I, I am certainly guilty of uh, listening to writers talk about having to write every day. And I try to enforce a practice on myself. And that's just not how my, how my brain works. And I'm not saying I'm sitting here going like, oh, the muse, you know, I don't, I don't need the muse to kind of strike. I do try to have discipline and sit myself down and, and write when I can. Um, but I think, you know, someone kind of saying the, the correct way to write is to, to 
you know, designate this X amount of time, this, you know, Y amount of days and, and, um, you know, make sure you have an outline, make sure you've got these things. And, you know, I think every writer needs to figure out where on the spectrum their, their process can lie and their habits. Um, but also, you know, in addition to that, just related to that, I think making, making writing a, a, a priority where you can has, has been so helpful for me. You know, I, maybe I can't write every single day, but I know that I need to prioritize writing if I'm going to, if I'm going to sit down and do it, I need to designate, well, no, you can't do that one thing that you're thinking about, or, you know, clean your entire house, which all of a sudden I need to do <laughs> instead of, instead of write that chapter. Um, you know, it's, it, it needs its space. It needs, it needs dedication. Um, I think, and, and once I let it be a priority and I make it one, um, and I make it so then I sit down and I realize how much it's giving me too, as I'm sitting and writing, like what it's fueling me and, rejuvenating me too. So I think just, you know, writers making time for it and, and accepting that they might have to find their own process. But, but once you do, I think it's, it's so freeing. That's great. Well, what books have you read recently that you enjoyed either novels or nonfiction? Yeah. Oh man, I've read so many, um, so many good ones lately. I, I've, I've been on a fiction kick. I'm way behind on my nonfiction, which is a shame. I love nonfiction. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've definitely been, been, um, kind of in the minds, uh, mindset of, of fiction lately. Um, I read, uh, not long ago, I, I read Juhei Kim's Beasts of a Little Land, um, actually while I was traveling. So that was really cool. I, she, and it's a novel, it's a debut novel set in, um, in Korea and and during the war and uh, examining like you know its impact on a, a very small cast of characters who are all connected and um, um, and it just swept me away. It's just that kind of historical fiction novel, I, and I know very little about the, the Korean history, so that was beautiful too. Um, and I have never been, so it kind of came alive in in the book for me, which is just everything you want from a, you know a sweeping kind of novel, um, and. Uh, and I'm, I have tons on my to read list, uh, which has been which has been fun. Um, and the other one I read not long ago, um, and she's got a couple of books out, so I'm kind of ashamed to say that I, I just started reading her first one. Is um, uh, Arsenic and Adobo uh, by um, Oh my goodness, I'm going to get her name wrong because I'm thinking of her her heroine. His name is uh, Laila Makabagal, but it's um, um, Mia. Oh my goodness. I forget her name. Let's see. Arsenic. I have it here. Oh, Mia Manansala, um, who is a Filipina writer. Uh, and it's a cozy mystery, which I, I don't have much experience with cozies. Mm -hmm. And it was so much fun. And it's from about a Filipino family. So that was a lot of just personally, I, I enjoyed reading like all the recipes that I know and um, <laughs> seeing the switching back and forth. She's, she's dealing with her aunties who are you know, bickering and gossiping. And that's just rings so true. <laughs> um, and it was, it was lovely. And, um, and so I, I kind of got into, you know, I, I had my literary fiction and then I had like this cozy mystery and um, those kind of carried me through the, the summer when I was, I was traveling a bit and, and visiting family. So, so many good things. It's hard to recommend like just one. I don't know how, I don't know how people do this. This is hard. <laughs> That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your debut novel? Oh, thanks so much. Uh, well, I have a website, so it's, it's just KimberlyGarza.com. Nice and simple. If you can spell Kimberly with, um, just one E, I feel like I have to often say that, um, KimberlyGarza.com. And um, I'm also on social. So my handles are, are there as well. But um, 
um, Twitter and Instagram. You know, I'm getting I'm getting better at the socials. I was pretty bad <laughs> at them. Um, I'm still not great uh, to the I think to the the frustration of like my younger cousins and nieces and nephews, which is like, oh, Kim, come on, like be be cool on Instagram. Um, but uh, but yeah, yeah. So you can start with the website and then and then try not to judge my my social media too hard. <laughs> That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Kimberly Garza, author of the debut novel, The Last Karankawas. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Kimberly, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. In the parking lot of Sacred Heart Catholic Church, in the cool dusk, which is a lie already because it is never really cool, not even on this January evening, since this is Texas. And more specifically, this is Galveston. We wait. We stand on the concrete, ducking into windows of one another's parked cars to chat. Or we sit inside with the AC blasting. Or we lean against the walls and watch twilight draw shadows like a dark veil around the church. We are there before even the priest arrives to unlock the doors, or the volunteer choir sets up their amps and microphone stands. We prowl for things to do, tasks to help with. Some of us, like Yoli Sandoval and Tagay Macasantos, cart in vases of flowers from our new Buicks. Some of us, like Gloria Rivera or Marlo Suayan, arrive in hand-me-down Hondas with roses clipped from our backyard bushes. Red, always red, for the holy day. We arrange flowers on the altar or at the feet of the Blessed Mother's statue or beside the portrait of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, for whom this church is named. When we think about that, we place more flowers by the portrait. Some of us, humming with the energy of Santo Niño Feast Day, buzz about distributing paper programs, the programs we have used since we started this event many years ago. The pamphlets are battered, creased from our hands, pocked by ink blots and typos where we list the schedule of the Mass. The Tagalog prayers we will say together, the Tagalog songs we will sing. We place copies in each pew. We sit or kneel on the cushions, our fingers pressed to rosary beads. We tune our guitars and warble a few chords of the opening song. O Santo Ninyong Marikit, Sangol Nahandog ng Langit. Our voices, in song or in gossip, echo in every corner of the Catholic Church on Broadway and 13th, which had been quiet before we arrived. We do very little quietly, and yet we quiet when Maharlika Castillo walks in. We turn to watch. She has that effect. She strides into Sacred Heart purposefully with her daughter. Carly, is that her name? Yes, by the hand. Hello, we call out to them and ask Maharlika, Kumusta kana? I'm fine, she replies in pointed English. We flinch. We can't help it. Her English is sharp, intentional, a knife aimed at us. From her new crooked smile that shows teeth to this language she chooses in place of ours, she has built an arsenal. She wages war against us and the world. Once she was kind to us. 
When she arrived, she found us almost immediately, as every FOB does, bonding first with the ones who worked at the hospital. We walked her through the corridors and buildings of John Seeley and the larger complex, taught her where the supply closets and cafeterias were, where to purchase scrubs, how to update charts, and input medical data for UTMB system-wide. We instructed her on the Spanish phrases she would need to learn. ¿Cómo se escribe su nombre? ¿Tienes seguro médico? In our homes, we passed her platters of sticky rice and whole fish fried crisp. When she wept with homesickness, we rubbed her shoulders, shushing her as we too had once needed. And on this feast day, the one day of the year when the Filipino community emerges from every sweaty corner of Galveston to unite and honor our patron saint, Maharlika was always there. She read at the podium, sang in the choir, served plates of pancit and adobo at the after party. Was it just two years ago that she was last here? That she was one of us? Maharlika. We used to say with admiration, marveling at the rare, beautiful name that means in our tongue something akin to nobility, to being of a line with royal blood. Maharlika. But she is exalted now, or thinks she is. That is probably our fault. She washed up on this island with a nursing degree and a job at the hospital, despite having never set foot in America before. We thought she was embracing a new life as we had. Unlike us, she had family here, her mother, who had immigrated long before. We did not really know her mother, and when she died of cancer not long after Maharlika arrived, we felt no sorrow. But we went dutifully to her funeral mass, prayed the novena for her in Maharlika's apartment in Fish Village. We should have noticed it then, but we didn't. Should have seen the shape Maharlika's grief took, curled up sideways on the couch, cheek to the padded arm, slippered feet tucked beneath her as if she hadn't the energy to take her shoes off. Thank you for listening to this clip provided to you by Macmillan Audio. To hear more, look for this title wherever audiobooks are sold. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.